that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, for the next hour. Today on the program, we'll be talking about City Council's decision this morning to approve the controversial 19-story rise development in Mount Pleasant. We'll then be discussing recent findings out of the UBC Geography Department about how Vision Vancouver's use of comprehensive development zoning uh, designation is significantly different from previous municipal parties and how the rise decision is consistent with these findings. And in the second half of the show, we'll be talking about Vancouver's acoustic cartographies with fellow UBC undergraduate geography students. Stay with us. Welcome to the city on CITR 101.9 FM. It's April 17th and uh, Vancouver, uh, Vancouver City Council today at their uh, city council meeting approved a controversial 19-story development at uh, East Broadway and Kingsway. And uh, to talk about this decision, something that we uh, uh, talked about earlier on in uh, uh, this year uh, with, with RAMP, the Residents Association of Mount Pleasant. Um, I have Sandeep Johal on the line uh, with RAMP. Uh, Sandeep, thanks for uh, being with me. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, um, Oh, sorry, I yeah. just wanted to clarify. Um, it's actually not 19 stories because of the increased floor-to-floor height, so okay. it's actually 23 stories. And this is something RAMP has been uh, very much concerned about because Absolutely. Um, the heights, the, the stories are not consistent with uh, what what the heights have been reported to be. Right. So can you tell me, um, I have a press release from the mayor's office, but first uh, I want to get your initial reaction, Sandeep, on this issue. Well, I haven't watched the video footage yet, so I don't know all of the details um, except that it's been passed, but I don't know with which conditions. Um, but I feel the council really missed the boat on this one and they lost out on an opportunity to do things differently. They lost out on an opportunity to set a positive precedent, and they lost out on an opportunity to restore community trust. And can you just reiterate for um, those those tuning in or, or perhaps even new to this issue, um, what the concerns are with this um, rezoning and um, what's included in this rezoning package? Well, I guess it goes down to, well, it comes down to the faulty public consultation process. So the community was consulted in a year-long process and their input was by and large ignored. 
Um, the application came in with a 26-story high-rise, um, 62 market store rental units, and a 9,200-square-foot artist space. And, and then yeah. it was reduced to 19 stories, but actually 23 stories. And at, by the end of the year, the artist space had been taken out, as well as the market rental units. And they were proposing to give the city a $6.25 million cash contribution instead. And uh, $1.75 million of that is going to... Um, uh, to be des- designated affordable housing uh, in the neighborhood. That's uh, well, that's <laughs> that's the understanding. Yeah. But at the public hearing, Councillor Jang himself said that that alone wasn't enough for affordable housing. Obviously, very and small. He said they would have <laughs> to leverage yeah. more money from other partners. And as soon as those funds became available, then they could start, you know, doing something with it. But the question then is, well, will those funds ever become available? And if so, when? And will it really be used in the community? Right. Um, I'm going to go to uh, a a press release that was issued right after uh, the decision um, from the mayor's office. Okay. Um, And I'm going to read it verbatim and just have you comment on this. Sure. Um, uh, City Council today approved a new 241-unit development in Kingsway and East Broadway, which will see $4.5 million invested in Mount Pleasant for arts and culture, as well as $1.75 million for affordable housing in Mount Pleasant. Following several nights of public hearings on the project, Mayor Robertson and Council directed staff to make several changes to the development based on concerns from the public about the size and shape of the building. Prior to a development permit being issued, the building applicant must work with staff to reduce the size of the front of the building on Broadway, Uh, secondly, improve the pedestrian experience on Broadway in front of the building, and thirdly, create smaller scale um, and expression on all facades. Um, And then... uh, Mayor Robertson uh, in his office uh, laid out some additional reasons why they're supporting this. Um, and, and in the, uh, the title of this memo or this uh, press release, um, they're, they're calling it a, a new transit-oriented development. And that's one of the reasons that um, they've, they supported this, um, this rezoning application and consequently voted this morning to approve it. Now, Sandeep, um, going, I want to actually take a step back and, mm-hmm. um, and address the history of this. Um, and they say that they're responding to uh, concerns um, by community ma- members and, and the neighborhood. Um, how do you feel about uh, that use of language in, in the response? They, I, it's window dressing, honestly. They haven't responded to any of the concerns. If they had actually listened to the people who came to the public hearing and spoke against the project, listened to their points, listened to the facts that they came with, they wouldn't have passed this. And for the the changes, so this has been approved with um, three um, somewhat vague, but um, I guess in many ways I would call them, and others, critics have called them uh, cosmetic uh, changes that are required. Um, So reduce the size of the front of the building facing Broadway, um, improve pedestrian experience on Broadway in front front of the building, and create smaller scale and expression on all facades. This is all design related. Um, Yeah. Is, but, I mean, the yeah. major issue with the design was the height. Right. And that, so they've completely ignored that. And did you, uh, did you think they would ignore that? I came in with an open mind, um, despite people in the community and the broader community saying this was a done deal. And going through the public hearing process and looking at how they had changed the public hearing bylaws in the middle of the public hearing, um, looking at how... They had made this public hearing go on for five weeks. A lot of people missed their turns to speak. There were about, 
at least 100 absent speakers. Um, and then looking at the councillor bias throughout the whole process, I mean, by the end of it, I was pretty sure that it was a done deal. And in the last uh, campaign season, Vision received just over $10,000 in campaign contributions from the Rise Alliance. Yep. Um, how do you feel about um, money in at the municipal level from developers? And, well, and has I, that affected you know, the like decision? Everyone, I think it does play um, a role in decisions, even though they say it doesn't. But if someone's going to give you money, they're going to expect something in return, even though uh, legal services says there's no conflict of interest when it comes to developers giving council money. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll let you go uh, quickly here, but are there any final thoughts you want to leave uh, listeners with? Yeah, I just want to quickly um, touch upon the transit-oriented comment that Mayor Robertson had made in his press release. Absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering when you say you approve this because it's, you know, a transit hub. Um, if you're planning on building rapid transit at Maine and Broadway, which city planning staff said wouldn't be until maybe 2020 or later, so it's eight, eight or more years from now, why would you put three floors of underground parking with 320 spaces for cars? I think if this is going next yeah. to a uh, potential transit, rapid transit. I think that's an excellent question. <laughs> which was brought yeah. up several times along the way. There was also a demonstration done last Friday to show the traffic impact. They haven't really thought out the whole loading bay, semi-trailer truck access, pedestrian and biking thoroughfare on tents. And I'm, I'm concerned because I think someone will get hurt. I think there's potential for a lot of danger um, during the construction phase and afterwards. Hmm. So, um, I, I, I mean, I, my last words I would say here is that, you know, the whole process is flawed. And unless we change the process, especially the dysfunction in the planning process, nothing will change and no one will be held accountable for anything. And, you know, it's, I think it's a sad day for residents of Mount Pleasant, but residents from other communities who will be going through this process after us, creating their community plans that, you know, it doesn't matter what your input is or it doesn't matter you know, sort of what the community concerns are, they get trumped by the bottom line, which is money. And moving forward, uh, has certainly the vote was just uh, just conducted today and it was mm-hmm. approved today. Um, is RAMP planning to take any further action on this? I mean, there's always further action to take. Um, there's definitely different paths that can be taken and we'll be exploring all of those paths. Okay, Sandeep, uh, Sandeep Johal from the Residents Association of Mount Pleasant. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Andy. Okay, take care. Okay, bye. And that was uh, Sandeep again from RAMP um, speaking about the approval of um, uh, a new development in Mount Pleasant, uh, which was voted upon and approved today. Um, I have Craig Jones in studio, and uh, we are both uh, geography undergraduate geography students um, here at UBC. And to tie into this discussion, um, we've been spending the last number of months looking at the use of uh, the comprehensive development CD1 rezoning, or sorry, zoning district in Vancouver and how um, it has changed over time. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about, we have some initial findings that we want to discuss. Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So, uh, yeah, can you tell uh, folks about what 
some of these initial findings reveal? Absolutely. So we've looked uh, at CD1s for the last 21 years. And I, uh, will, and I will jump in and note that the RISE um, development is a CD1, and uh, this is a typical, this is typically how large uh, condominium towers with commercial podiums are rezoned uh, in Vancouver. And so I just wanted to put that context in mind. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, CD1 is, is used for a lot of structures that have uh, transformed the built environment of Vancouver, such as Canada Place, Rogers Arena, the Shangri-La. Uh, these all fall under CD1s. But CD1 is such a broad category that you can also have um, parking lots or uh, designations that allow for a fourth floor to a three-story building. So it's, a, it's an incredibly broad designation that, that covers a lot of things. So in order to narrow down our analysis and, and to kind of fit, uh, weed out some of, of the noise that's created by how broad this designation is, we started by cutting off everything that was under 30 meters tall. So that's, that's really our starting, our starting point, is, is which equals about 10-story towers. So what we found is that the rise is actually completely consistent with uh, Vision's use of CD1s uh, that allow for a maximum height above 30 meters uh, from 2009 to 2011. Especially the fact that it's, it's outside of the downtown core. Uh, when we looked back at CD1 use by the MPA uh, and by COPE, we found that um, on average, the MPA for the 15 years in power, 15 years the MPA has been in power on city council over the last 21 years, that 70% of CD1s were located in the downtown core and west end in the downtown peninsula. Right. Um, when we narrowed that field to 1991 to 1996, in which COPE, sorry, in which the MPA used, uh, a, did it pass a lot of CD1s, that number actually jumps to 79% of all the CD1s they passed in that six-year stretch were located downtown. In downtown, right. Yeah. When we look at COPE between 2003 to 2005, a full 88% of CD1 designations allowed for maximum height above 30 meters were located in downtown. So for those three years under COPE, it's, almost, it's, it's overwhelmingly downtown. Right. However, when we looked at Vision from 2009 to 2011, 42% of CD1 uh, rezonings that allowed for building height above 30 meters were located in downtown Peninsula. Right. That means that... Significantly lower from, from NPA and COPE. Significantly yeah. lower. That, that means that for the for the first time um, during a term, <laughs> more than half of CD1 rezonings were located outside of, more than half of rezonings that allowed for building height above 30 meters were outside of the downtown peninsula. So, yeah, so what we're seeing is that CD1 is a zoning district um, where we are seeing land parcels in property, um, which is, has a specific zoning, um, and then uh, land is being rezoned uh, for CD1, um, now increasingly by vision outside of the downtown peninsula. Absolutely. Um, and part of that is certainly downtown is already uh, full of towers. Um, so this could be, well, a city is growing, right? Um, but I think it's interesting that uh, it has been uh, consistently um, much higher. And I think RISE is certainly following that pattern. And it has huge implications, I think, for neighborhoods um, that don't necessarily oppose density. Um, Ramp was very clear that they don't oppose density. Mount Pleasant is one of the densest neighborhoods in the city, um, looking at those census tracts, um, and they already have that density, but they don't necessarily want it in the condo tower form, which uh, largely CD1 is used to rezone for. 
Yeah, I, I'd, ag- I'd agree. Yeah. Um, you know, our, I don't have the the, uh, the exact numbers of the number of like comparing like 30 meters. But when we're talking about tall buildings that, you know, 10 story tall buildings that are, are being categorized as CD1, Vision is putting these more so than any other party in the last 21 years outside of the downtown core. And we're, I was quite surprised. I was surprised by these findings that how strong they are. And given the amount of resistance to the rise that, that I saw on the, you know, the video feeds of the, of the town, of the public, public consultations, public meetings, it's, I'm not entirely surprised because it, it just is so consistent with, with what our findings have uh, indicated. Have come up with. Yeah. Yeah. So more to come on that. Um, and, uh, I will, uh, post some of these initial findings um, on the cityfm.wordpress.com um, and this this research um, uh, has been conducted over the last um, four months or so um, using uh, public records from the city of Vancouver um, and their rezoning uh, the re- uh, city of Vancouver's rezoning center uh, database so um, certainly really interesting and, and more to come um, on this for sure. So, any final comments on this or the rise uh, rezoning? Well, I just what what this uh, the, what I'm thinking about the most is is the predictive power of our analysis so far. I'm right. I'm going to be really interested in three years' time to look at what's what's happened in this current term to compare uh, with our findings now with what Vision continues to do. Well, and our, what I think is really interesting is something so controversial as this rise tower. Um, which was approved today. Um, I should also note that um, all vision counselors um, voted um, uh, except uh, for Tim Stevenson, who was absent um, from a number of the public hearings and did not chose not to vote, chose to abstain. Um, and but it was only opposed by uh, lone uh, Green Party councillor Adrian Carr. Um, and NPA councillor George Affleck also voted for it, um, along with uh, the other uh, vision councillors, excluding Tim Stevenson. So I think it's really interesting to see how mobilized Ramp was and to see that they, um, even regardless of community and neighbourhood opposition, um, they put this through. And I think Sandeep made an interesting point that there wasn't um, one of their primary concerns was the height of this. Um, and that it was somewhat inconsistent, or not somewhat, but largely inconsistent with the neighborhood. Um, and so I, I, I am, I have to admit, I am surprised. Um, I thought they would cut some floors off of the building, um, but <laughs> well, at uh, at a height of twenty three stories, if we assume that each story is three meters, that's sixty nine meters altogether. And this is just a rough estimate, yeah. but that's really consistent with the the mean height of uh, all CD ones above 30 meters that visions passed uh, in that in their last in their previous term so it's not it's not it's not a this is not a uh, a large deviation from What's what we've already, already observed yeah okay Craig Jones uh, fellow UBC geography student uh, thanks so much for coming in thanks um, for having me. and we're gonna take a quick music break um, we have more UBC geography students um, working on acoustic cartographies of Vancouver coming up next uh, we're going to explore what that means and uh, hear um, from them on their research as well. Uh, stay tuned. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, and uh, this is uh, Grimes.
As interesting as listening to this PSA is, there's nothing quite like watching it. Watching what, you ask? The annual showcase of films that accompany it as part of the POV, or Persistence of Vision, Film Festival. This showcase of short films written, directed, shot, edited, and produced by students in the film production program at UBC happens only once a year. On April 27th and 28th, join the POV Festival at the Empire Granville 7 Cinemas in the heart of downtown Vancouver as these magnificent films are debuted. For tickets and information, visit povfilmfestival.com. The federal government is trying to ram through a set of electronic surveillance laws that will invade your privacy and cost you money. The plan is to force every phone and internet provider to surrender our personal information to authorities without a warrant. The worst part of their invasive, all-encompassing surveillance scheme is that you have to pay for it out of your own pocket. Send Ottawa a message by signing the petition at stopspying.ca. That's www.stopspying.ca. Thank you. And welcome back to the city on CATR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting live from the Student Union Building at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. And you're also listening to us on CITR.ca and uh, Shaw Cable FM 88.5. And uh, you can also find the podcasts um, of this show um, and others at CITR.ca. So um, without any more, let's go into the second half of the show. And I have... um, fellow students from the UBC Geography Department um, here at UBC, and we're going to be talking about um, acoustic cartographies and soundscapes in Vancouver. Um, And first, actually, why don't we first do a round of introductions um, and then uh, go into into some specific questions. So um, do you guys mind just introducing yourselves? Does that work? Okay. Um, Do you guys want to start with Max, maybe? Hi, I'm Max. I'm a PhD student in geography. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a student in geography. Hi, my name's Erica, and I'm a fourth-year student in human geography. My name's Andrew. I'm in my third year in UBC Geography. And my name's Alex, and I'm in my fourth year geography, human geography honors. Awesome. So I want to start with you, Max. Um, uh, You're a PhD student in the department, um, and your research focuses on the politics of sound. Um, Can you tell people what um, acoustic cartographies are uh, broadly and um, what uh, some of the languages, also urban sound ecologies, um, where this comes from, and uh, and what it what it actually means. Yeah, for sure. Um, Acoustic cartographies was this event we organized just this past Sunday, the second annual uh, event around um, a series of collaborative sound mapping projects undertaken by undergrads here at UBC, and really it's about uh, exploring the city in a different way than we're used to, and in this case through the register of sound. So these students who didn't really have any idea what was going to happen to them were given a bunch of tasks, basically, and some field recorders and some maps, which is what the Urban Sound Ecology website is. And then through the instruction of people like Liz Lee and Joey Pratt at UBC, they embarked on a series of attempts to really try to figure out how certain things sound, how certain social processes have their own acoustic cartography. So these people in the room with me today were... um, playing us an amazing composition about gender relations on, on Sunday at the Western Front and how the city has a, a sound to it that's gendered. Mm. And just last night, I mean, people going crazy about the hockey game, you know, on Granville Street certainly suggests a certain kind of politics of masculinity around sound, which can be really oppressive for a lot of people. And can you um, maybe define broadly um, what a soundscape is? 
Because yeah. that's something that will probably come up in this discussion. For sure, for sure. Well, the term is really popularized by a guy named Armory Schaefer, who uh, began using it in the late 1960s here in Vancouver uh, through his associations at SFU. And it, it can really describe a lot of things, I think, but most of all, the relationship between sounds and place. So the certain uh, keynotes of, uh, of, an, of an area of space and uh, those consistencies across time as well. So in his case, Schaefer was interested in the soundscapes of Vancouver as they were transforming through industrialization, as uh, harmonious sounds of nature were being lost to the, uh, the din of the cars and the ambulances. And uh, also there's a historical element too, like the loss of certain kinds of activities has a parallel in the soundscape of the city. So the decline of the port community here in Vancouver. I mean, there used to be a lot more port noises. Mm -hmm. But as the cities transitioned to, you know, different kinds of economies, different kinds of sounds have accompanied those, different kinds of soundscapes. Great. Um, Now going uh, to the the research that you guys did, can you tell us broadly... um, what what you found and uh, maybe the even the title of the the project um, that you put together. Well, uh, our title was "Listening to Space: Gender, Power, and the Experientiality of Sound." So we were really trying to look at the uh, different linking linking factors between gender and power in the city, um, and we did that by uh, doing a variety of walks around the city. Uh, and our predominant focus ended up being downtown Vancouver. Okay. And uh, I know you have some clips. Um, we should just get right into it. You have some clips prepared. Um, the first one I have is um, the Canby Street Bridge. Should I start with this one? Yeah, go okay. ahead. And then uh, we're going to have a bit of discussion after each clip um, and uh, and talk about that. So here's uh, Canby Street Bridge, and uh, we'll get right into that. And uh, that was the first clip. Can you guys talk a little bit about what we heard and where that was and um, some of the thoughts that that go into that clip? Sure, yeah. That was um, the Canby Street Bridge during the day. Um, Alex and I just walked over it, taking a sound recording, and um, what we found quite interesting was um, the effect that sound had in redefining boundaries. We usually think of of boundaries in in visual terms and physical terms, but sound creates its own space as well that has an effect on on the bodies within it. And um, the boundaries of of a sound space 
are actually more fluid. They're like waves on a beach. And so if you, if you um, listening to that, you may notice that like as a, as a loud vehicle goes by, that the sound increases and, and there is an increasing effect on the person um, doing the walk. We did a very similar one on Granville Street, and, uh, and this is where this sort of idea came from, was, was the effect that the traffic had on us was that it was sort of a consciously forcing us away from, from the road. And so the, the, the space that was, the physical space for pedestrians was actually decreased because of the effect of noise sort of forcing us over. Um, but that would change depending on You, you on almost the hear, hear a loud car going by and you automatically you move over. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It decreases the pedestrian space. So there's definitely two realms of space. There's like the automotive space that you, as a pedestrian, obviously can't go into. You'll get run over. But also the fact that you are physically being pushed to one side by the noise. Okay. Um, any, any other thoughts on that one or should we go to the next one? Yeah, we can move on to the next okay, one. Okay, cool. And this one is, do you want to tell people what they're listening to first, or should we play it and then let people think about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's let people think about it. Okay. So this is... Think about it. (laughs) This is the second clip. So what was that? Um, so this clip you just heard is um, a sound walk we did on February 14th during the annual Downtown Eastside Women's March. Um, and so this was a very provocative and moving clip and soundscape that we experienced. Um, and one main significant point we drew from this sound walk was our transgression um, from one space to another. As we moved from the back of the march, we felt we were very included in the crowd. And as we increased to the front of the crowd, um, you notice the power dynamics change and the drum beats get louder and there's kind of this a very powerful force of um of louder drums and louder voices and as we move to the front we kind of our our own space became kind of excluded 
Yeah, we became uh, we became kind of like the the observers in the space. I mm-hmm. think, and it's important to note that that isn't something that they portrayed. They didn't put that feeling upon us. We kind of felt that way um, as a direct result of sort of moving through the crowd, and uh, I guess feeling more uncomfortable as we got to the front because we kind of felt as though this was a space um, of marginalised. Uh, women and it was a very emotional emotional day for for all of us um but we were kind of maybe treading on their toes in one way and what we mm-hmm. actually discovered is is that space was being taken over by those women by everyone at that march it became very empowered uh, and it really changed the space of the downtown downtown east side but also areas of downtown that don't usually see maybe those kind of people there just listening to these guys talk it's really interesting um there's this guy, Bernie Krauss, he's a writer who talks about how using field recorders and listening with field recorders can be a really good way of listening without a field recorder. And I think what you're describing here, like what other people have been talking about as well in this project, is how, how really physically, and, um, physically aware you are um, of, of sound when you begin to like, you know, consider it front and center, which is often what we not do. And I think that you know, these projects were really about... like forms of attention that we're not used to giving ourselves and, and I mean just hearing the displacement of all these emotions and feelings in one single parade I think speaks mm-hmm. to that a lot Definitely. anything else on that or uh, should we move along to the next one as well I think we next one ahead. okay uh, do you want to tell people what they're going to hear on this one no no you like this okay okay um so this is the third clip um and if you're just tuning in this is citr 101.9 fm and i have um ubc geography undergraduates and uh, max ritz a phd student in the department talking about um the the acoustic cartographies um and soundscapes um of vancouver and this is um was part of a, a, a undergraduate research methodologies project that culminated in um, a curated event at the Western Front here in Vancouver um, that happened this past Sunday. So we're uh, going through the research and the, the um, sound walks that they did and, and discussing it. So uh, this is the third clip, um, and uh, without any further ado, here it is. So what did uh, what did we hear on that clip? That was a walk I didn't do. That was Alex's walk. Okay, it was on the Granville Strip, but it was in the daytime. Say that. So sorry. Say that again. Sorry, it was on the Granville Strip in the daytime. Uh, I think it was a 
yeah, it was a weekend and I was really sunny out and that's actually something that we touched upon in our project was temporality and how mm-hmm. uh, obviously your your um, awareness of self and the feelings that you get in space change depending on depending on the time of day and also who you're with so I was alone when I did this one but uh, as you can hear there's a as you can hear in the clip there's a saxophone player on the corner it's, it's very sort of vibrant on the Granville Strip and at night time there's a lot of street artists and street musicians and in the daytime too and what I found was that it kind of really really adds layers to the space and really la- uh, adds a sort of vibrancy uh, to the urban environment that I really enjoy and I, I live downtown and so I really kind of feel that whenever I step out onto the pavement, step out of my front door, I really feel a sense of the urban environment kind of like coming in and hmm. washing over me. We also thought this piece contained a lot of very ubiquitous Vancouver sounds. You can hear the the diesel bus, you can hear the sounds of the, the wires the buses are attached to. Those are some sounds that we heard in a lot of places throughout the city and we thought have come to represent Vancouver. Um, going back to um, like the the micro geography and of of certain streets, I think it's really interesting when we listen to them. Um, I think certainly Granville Street has a certain sound to it, and I think it certainly changes depending on the type of time of day and what's going on. Um, but I also think like I can think of a few streets in Vancouver where um, it's you have very vibrant um, soundscapes. And I think of Commercial Drive. I think of like drumming, drum circles in Grandview Park. There's um, Granville Street with buskers. There's, um, um, I mean, if you're there late enough, people getting out of clubs, and that's a whole soundscape in itself. Um, probably more human conversations in that one. But uh, I think it's really interesting how different parts of the city um, have different sounds and have different geographies of sound. Anything else you guys want to add on that, or should we go to the next? There's also a lot of like homogenization of sound too, which is I think what comes out when you hear all those cars. Yeah, I think that's one theme that we all kind of discovered in this project. All these different student teams were doing you know different things, focusing on different questions, but the car comes through. This really is an automobile culture in yeah. you know, the city, and that came through um, not only with with your research but with other groups as well. The persistence of uh, the uh, automobile is very present in, I think, every, perhaps every clip, um, maybe except the march, actually. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, so this is uh, now the fifth clip, um, and uh, I'll put that right on.
And so uh, what were people hearing on that clip? Um, that was a walk we did on Gramble Street at night, uh, I forget, between George and Robson, I think. And there was a series of buskers um, playing different forms of music, and they actually blended quite nicely together. Um, the thing that came out of that that was probably most intriguing to us was was the like the blatant performativity of space. I mean, the other sound clips that you've heard have different, more subtle performances, but this is like performers performing, but they perform that space in a certain way. Can you tell, can you unpack what performativity is? Yeah, yeah. The, I, yeah. the idea we were approaching when we used it came from, from like uh, Judith Butler or Jillian Rose, the idea that, that the, uh, the, the character of a space um, is brought into being by the performances of, of bodies within that space and and um, that from the literature that we looked at, that was mostly focused on visual elements. And given the nature of our project, we thought it would be interesting to focus on sound as a performer, in uh, or as an element of performances within these spaces. And and this is a good example of that because it's so it's so musical and so sort of obviously performative. It, it creates this very interesting mosaic of of uh, musical space, Granville Street. Mm -hmm. Much different than, like you were saying earlier, Granville Street, say, at uh, 1.32 a.m. in the morning, which we also did, which is mostly people being disgorged from bars and, <laughs> and you know... Leaving stuff behind on the street. Leaving lots of stuff <laughs> behind on the street, yeah. yeah. Watch your stuff. <laughs> this idea of, of, like, acoustic performativity is a pretty wild idea. I think, I just want to say that, like, what these guys are up to, what they did in this project was really experimental like I don't know of anybody else who's actually doing this kind of thing right now and there's lots of really cool work in the sort of sound studies field but you know I think these guys should be like recognized for trying something that's like there's no precedent for this guys like I want to know like what happened what were, like did you encounter problems were you like wondering what you could do after your first day and like not expecting you know everything to come out right away I think we were we were kind of performing in our own way as well. I mean, we we went out not really knowing what our methodology would entail, and we we just we just walked around with recorders, and we actually tried to do it in groups as much as possible. And we also sort of had uh, little focus groups amongst ourselves. I think afterwards, and kind of unpacked what we heard uh, at that stage, because obviously, right after you listen to but after you listen to something and you've been immersed in that space, if you if you then go away and you think about it for a day, it's going to change than when you initially heard it. So we we really really tried to get to grips with it in that way, but we definitely didn't know what what to expect. That's that was kind of how it was so experimental, as we didn't really know what we were going to achieve when we started, which left us panicking for the first month of term. I think <laughs> definitely. I was going to ask you a question about. I think for perhaps for some people who aren't exposed to um, geographies of sound or uh, ecologies of sound, um, someone might say, well, you're hearing a bus or you're hearing somebody chants at a march. Like, how do you how do you um, argue that this is something more? And how do you argue that what you're saying cannot be transferable to any theory or to anything? Is, was, is that something that you dealt with in the, in the sound walks and when you were thinking about it and the research and the, the theoretical frameworks that you're working within? Um, what were some of those, did some of those issues come up? How did you get to gender 
and power as some of the prevailing themes? Hmm. So that, that's the hard question. Um, gender and power began as our prevailing themes, but okay. I don't know if they actually ended up as prevailing themes. Um, we approached it thinking, okay, we're going to go and record sounds and then listen to them and, and sort of ascribe meaning to them, gender, power, whatever. Um, but that, that turned out to be quite difficult actually mm-hmm. because it, it it's um it I don't know it doesn't to me it doesn't I mean I'm not speaking for the group necessarily here but to me it doesn't feel very, feel very genuine to ascribe that sort of meaning to things when when any person might sort of ascribe a different meaning to it so uh, as our project evolved so did our, our conceptualization of, of how we were supposed to approach this and that's where performativity came from and, personal um, narrative as well. Personal narrative, it, situated it became, knowledge. It became a lot more internal. So we originally, it was very external, and we were going to sort of look at the sound and take ourselves out of the space. And what we found during the project is that you can't do that. And sound has context, and you, as your own body, interpret sounds differently than the next person. And that was a big part of our research, was the whole idea of where your knowledge is situated and, and what your personal histories are and how that impacts how you act and interact with space did you have con- in the research did you have conflicting ideas of of what how you would explain certain sound walks and certain uh, geographies yeah definitely uh, i think eric can talk a bit about uh imagine imagine geographies in that sense um no you don't want to <laughs> oh i was just gonna, i was just gonna talk about um because you asked previously why why sound and i think a lo- like a lot of in our research we found that sound particularly more so than the visual is a, like a very hugely embodied process and um, based on this idea that space is always, that sound is contextual and that you can't really take it out, we found, we kind of came up with our own little term, how people get sound marked um, and how these, these sounds kind of resonate within us and within our histories and our souls and our minds. And when we go back to that space, um, sound has a really significant way of sticking with us versus just a visual. Um, mm-hmm. So we found that in our research and in a, in a lot of the rich literature we reviewed. Definitely. Yeah. That's a really good point, too, because if you think about how malls are designed, Acoustically, how much spatial control is operated through the acoustic dimension, right? Music that forces you into certain areas or in a giant stadium, you know, music that amps you up. I mean, sound is a huge part of military culture. It always has been. Mm. And it's, I think, a huge part of consumer culture as well. Mm-hmm. So I think this idea of being sound marked makes a lot of sense. It's like being branded, right? Yeah. Well, they, they uh, I don't know where I heard this, but they say that um, if you play um, like upbeat, um, fairly fast tempoed music at restaurants, people are likely to eat faster. And you're going to get them out the door quicker yeah. so you can get the next people seated, right? So it's this interesting idea that it, you have um, perhaps an unconscious response to it. So um, before we run out of time, let's play the last clip um, right now and then uh, do a quick little uh, recap on that and uh, finish off.
And so that was the final clip. Um, you guys want to talk about that and what people heard? Right, that clip was the outside of BC Place Stadium after a Vancouver Whitecaps game. It was a, like a tie game Saturday night. Lots of people coming out. People were pretty amped up. It was kind of a like the stadium atmosphere that Max mentioned earlier. Do you think having it, if it, because it was tied, do you think people were excited but not, there can be like a, a, a soundscape of, you know, if, if a team loses, right? Or for anything, depending on the mood, it can be an upset or sort of like you can f- feel that through we, the acoustical geography? We actually all thought they'd won because oh, okay. we were so jubilant about the whole thing and we walked around. Maybe the Canucks fans should learn something. They should, <laughs> maybe. They probably should. We shouldn't say anything. I shouldn't have said that. No, don't say that. <laughs> Do you want um, so upon, um, yeah, further thoughts on this one, um, Andrew and I had a little comparison between the two. Um, based on my own uh, personal like history and stuff, I had a different uh, um interpretation of this of this space and bef- before entering it I kind of assumed or made the assumption that it was a space of hypermasculinity, um, a space of camaraderie, rowdiness um, and so before entering this space we kind of made this, I made this assumed imagined geography of this space and then when we entered it I felt upon hearing the sounds and what's re- which you heard there's families, there's laughter, there's different couples, there's all ages and it became a space of um, inclusion for me and I think Andrew had a s- different experience Oh, yeah. I mean, coming into this space, I've been to a lot of sports games. I'm used to the kind of after-game rowdiness. So it was I was definitely a lot more comfortable coming into this space than I would have been otherwise if it was like a, something different, if it wasn't a, a sports game. Interesting. It's interesting how we interpret and internalize sounds differently. Um, so do you guys want to wrap up with some conclusions or... Um, final thoughts on the research and um, where you feel that this can go? Um, I think one thing to mention is we had a really, really awesome time doing it. Best and time. <laughs> the best time. <laughs> yeah, we, we learn a lot about the city, I think, and uh, when walking around the city now, I think we all kind of look at it differently as, as a direct result of working in the space um, for, for, what, four or five months. And um, I think it's really kind of, like, changed again you know, it, it changes and evolves our own personal histories for the future. Um, so in terms of research that we could do, I think um, anyone else want to speak to like something we might consider doing in the future? Um, you mentioned earlier in one of your questions, I think, about like what, so what's the point mm-hmm. of listening to sounds? What does it mean? And I, I think mm-hmm. one of the things we discovered is that sound has very profound effects upon us, but we don't always link it to sound. Like the downtown east side Women's March was extremely powerful and emotional to experience. And traffic makes us uncomfortable walking across the Canby Street Bridge. And music makes us happy or sad or whatever. But So I guess that was sort of one of the conclusions. I mean, it's, it's an experimental approach, so it's hard to come up with a concrete set of results. What are your findings? Yeah, there, there are, there's more questions is what you end Absolutely. up with. But sounds, sounds have a big impact on us. And I think that's an important thing to explore. Okay. Well, I want to thank you all um, for uh, coming in today and talking about this. Um, I'm hoping to have uh, the other uh, groups, uh, sound groups uh, from this uh, course on the show next week or in coming weeks as well. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, And Max, thanks for coming in and also your involvement in the project as well. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure.
this is CATR 101.9 FM, and uh, Flex Your Head is coming up uh, shortly. Um, you can find the pa- podcast of this show at thecityfm.wordpress.com. Um, and uh, uh, more to come next week. Um, what more to say? We had a lot of good talk today. So please tune in next week. Um, you can check out the podcast again on the website. Um, also, everything CITR related, CITR.ca. Um, and thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll be talking more about the city next week. Can't make it to every store you wanted to on Record Store Day? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Be sure to tune in to CITR 101.9 FM on Record Store Day, Saturday, April 21st. CITR is teaming up with the good folks at CJSF 90.1 FM to bring you a taste of all the great live acts from a variety of shops around Vancouver. Live bands, DJs, and interviews will be heard from Beat Street, Neptune, Red Cat, Scratch, Final, and Zulu Records. It's impossible for mere mortals to be everywhere at once, but with the power of CITR and CJSF, you can. Don't miss out on Record Store Day, April 21st.